Hello everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Magnum Reads. I'm Spencer, and with me as usual are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? Good, Spencer. How are you? Doing okay. Looking forward to talking about Station Eleven for the second week in a row. Sounds good. Well, last week we covered, for a surprisingly long amount of time, the plot of Station Eleven, despite saying, I think, about 11 times that there wasn't much of a plot to talk about. We <laughs> still found a way to talk about it for two hours, as we do. This time we're going to talk about characters, which is a much more substantial portion of the plot, but we're going to try to be more breezy about it. We'll see how we do. Sounds good. Um, Spencer, I think that there's something amiss with uh, the actual beginning of our podcast. Are you you missing a certain feature that harkens back to earlier times? Yes, um, some alliterative... For, for you, Aspirations. BJ. For you, BJ. I will return to old form for next week when we discuss the themes of the book. Because that feels appropriate there to go into a bit of a literative turn of a phrase to discuss the complex inner workings of this tale. Sounds good. Well. Uh, so, right. mm-hmm. go ahead. No, I was going to say, Sarah, you mentioned that you had a uh, different promo to bring up to this particular podcast and for Mangum Reads in the future. Do you want to introduce that now or should we get to it later? Um, I actually think that it does kind of make sense to do it now, um, because I think it will relate to kind of what we are going to talk about today, at least I hope so. Um, So I am on the record and very much stake my claim to loving this book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have come to find out that not everyone feels this way about this book. (laughs) You've you've Um, definitely heard about one person in this podcast in the sense that... uh, uh, BJ, who was it that you said that I utterly disliked this book? Can't remember right now. Uh, Bri- was it Bree? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, Bree and I had dinner last week. Oh and God! Talked right. about all of the reasons that she does not like this book. <laughs> oh, that sounds it, fun. It's uh, very much not the poem. Oh, oh, how I love this book, and let me tell you the ways. <laughs> yes. Um, Although I will say it was interesting because um, she did tell me that like the real reason that she doesn't like this book, she thinks, um, is that it um, reminds her of Virginia and she never liked Virginia. Hmm. I hadn't really thought about a Virginia Woolf comparison. That's interesting. That sort of like meditative popping back and forth with the sort of experience of being in people's consciousness mm-hmm. as the sort of point of the story. So I, I kind of get It's a fair comparison. Um, I love Virginia. So, <laughs> and there's here the line. we are. But so here we get to this man, right? Um, while this book has a solid four-star review on Amazon.com, a little-known website um, that I like to peruse every once in a while, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there are a are fair we doing number one-star reviews of outrageous one-star oh reviews. <laughs> oh god, this will be fun. And so I'm gonna try, especially this is a new segment, and we're jumping into it kind of in the middle of our discussion of this book. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna give you. One that I think is like really, and I read a lot of one-star reviews, one that I think is kind of indicative of a lot of the things that people do complain about with this book. Um, Mm -hmm. And then one that is kind of specific to our topic today. I fully endorse this. This is a wonderful idea. We can kind of use those as maybe jumping off points for our discussion. Please. I was going to say, I I really like this segment, um, and it very much reminds me, one of my favorite things to do on ethnic restaurants is read the one-star reviews from white people. Yes. (laughs) And I feel like it's almost a better recommendation than, like, the good ratings that anybody has. um, Oh, yeah. Regardless of, of, uh, you know, ethnicity or whatever else, but, like, the... um, Especially, uh, 
usually white people, but that go to Szechuan restaurants and complain that it's oily is like my favorite thing. And they'll take <laughs> pictures of all the food and and be like, see, there's oil on it. And anyway, mm-hmm. um, that um, might need to be a, a whiskey on the weekend segment. But sure. Well, the same sort of principle applies in some to some extent to these as well, um, because there were cer- there were certainly some reviews that I read and took sort of like personal affront to like shit. They actually have a point, but I don't mm. care. Um, but then there were also some that were very affirming to me for liking the book because clearly these are idiots who don't like the book, so mm-hmm. it's fine. Um, like the people who couldn't understand why the electricity would have gone off if people died. Interesting. Yeah. That one doesn't require too many leaps of logic to understand, I wouldn't think. No, I wouldn't think so. Um, all right, so two reviews for you. The first one is the kind of, probably the one that we would have talked about last week um, if we had been doing the segment last week. Hmm. So this book is not science fiction. Bland soap opera shoehorned into post-apocalyptic peon to the most boring aspects of modern life. Imagine a bookshelf with the Hunger Games at one end, the road at the other, the stand somewhere in between. This book would be in the begin would be in the bin because it is rubbish. <laughs> End quote. So I will say, and we don't have to talk about this much, but I will say that the the like number one thing I saw in these reviews is that this book is not science fiction. And like Which is very true. No, it's not. It's potent it's very definitely misclassified in Amazon on Amazon and probably in libraries. I'm not really sure where it's housed. Um, but that's not like the book's fault. Mm-mm. Yeah. Well, I actually would have disagree to a certain extent that it's science fiction. It's post. It definitely has a post-apocalyptic setting. Was it's a I, science fictiony trope. Yeah, uh, but, but I mean, I I would say a lot of books that ta- that have like a fanciful outbreak of a plague of something like that that are vaguely scientifically based. I mean. I guess, like, there are other places that you could classify it, but if you don't have post-apocalyptic fiction, I, I feel like sci-fi is kind of a, as good as anywhere else to classify it. I mean, maybe fiction, but... Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. Like, there isn't the sort of genre conventions that we put on things in bookstores and libraries really don't do this book any services. Right. Um, but I do think that people... The problem seems to be that people found it expecting something that it's not. Yeah. I I mean, I guess to a certain extent, I would tell those people that suck it up and deal with it because there are authors that, (laughs) I mean, to a large extent, but there are authors that are middle of the road sci-fi that have stories that aren't insanely different from this. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a Heinlein story that's a, and a po- uh, post-apocalyptic like uh, frontier and story that's very sort of libertarian and whatever. And I feel like everybody would be like, oh, sure, it's sci-fi because it's Heinlein. Right. But there's nothing about it that's really sci-fi other than maybe it's- there was a nuclear explosion or something. I don't even remember what started the, the apocalypse that they're dealing with because it never really matters. Mm-hmm. Um and I, well, I'm sure there are people that will complain, first of all, because it's Heinlein, and, and second of all, because it was written for an audience that was probably 50 plus years ago. But in terms of classification, no one's going to bat an eye at it being classified as sci-fi. And I think that people have an expectation that sci-fi is robots and spaceships and 
I think that's more a misclassification that SYFI, the TV uh, channel, has done more than anything else, because what I've read, at least some authors that sort of differentiate sci-fi from other fiction and fantasy and stuff like that is a sort of plausible differentiation from our own uh, history universe whatever that has progressed in a different manner that is often in the future but not always Mm -hmm. sure and so you can sort of like and that's sort of where maybe alternate history is or isn't but i feel like if you're going to have an alternate history and you're going to classify it as fiction non-fiction slash sci-fi fantasy sci-fi fantasy makes a lot more sense than fiction or non-fiction sure and you know i was thinking too because a lot of people were in these reviews were kind of talking about like i never expected a post a post-apocalyptic book to be so boring um which excuse me um Mm. but also you know we were talking last week about how little time is spent in this book really discussing the sort of immediate aftermath of the apocalypse right the immediate aftermath of the plague which is what most other post-apocalyptic fiction really does is that kind of immediate moment by moment survival that you have to get to and this is really going beyond that and not really super concerned with the idea Mm. of that immediate survival to begin with and so i think that that kind of disconnect is really um at the seat of a lot of the sort of complaints about this book as well it's one of the one of the things that we we don't have a classification for that either yeah this is a book that does not easily fit into any category i mean it it's perfectly reasonable to assign this into science fiction just out of it matches traits of other science fiction works at least in terms of the setting but it kind of it you can see how it would rub people wrong if someone said oh this is a great science fiction book and the immediate picture they have in their heads is the classic pulpy science fiction works which it's never going to be in the same category mm-hmm. well and i feel like it's doing a disservice to science fiction to say that's what science fiction is yeah it, it, it is, is. It, it is the nature of categorization that we immediately think the most common pulpy category when we think of it, when we describe a particular genre. When we say horror, we, a lot of people immediately go to slasher, even though it's nowhere representative of how broad the horror genre. When people say science fiction, they immediately think Star Trek, though it's not necessarily indicative of whatever, but the full array of what science fiction is capable of. Mm-hmm. It is simplified in terms of how we think about things to make it easier. And it leaves uh, books like this struggling to find an audience at times. Yeah. Um, I, I, so in going with this segment, I figured I'd look in on Goodreads. Yes. Um, and the big problem that I have with Goodreads is there, most everybody has decided that the way to best rate something one star is to write their own novel about how much they didn't <laughs> yeah. like it. Yeah. Um, that and, is why I decided on Amazon and not Goodreads. <laughs> um, there, there were two that I thought were short enough. One that we can't really share on the podcast cause it's literally just a gif. Um, which I thought was really funny, which I shared in the chat, um, which is basically somebody rolling their eyes backwards and uh, (laughs) making it like they're bored. But Mm -hmm. the other one that uh, is short enough, which is made it 60% through this, if my two options were dying in the apocalypse or surviving and joining a post-apocalyptic traveling theater, I choose death. (laughs) All right. Sarah, what was the other uh, other review of yours? Yeah, so this one goes directly to kind of characters. 
Um, and this one is, I mean, it's not long by any means. It's a little bit longer. Um, and it's really kind of a two-parter. So, quote, plot is exceptional. Execution is fair, bordering on lazily convenient. Prose styling is miserable, and character illustration slash anything resembling a thinking human is catastrophically bad, save Miranda, one of the book's few redeemed qualities. To Mandel's credit, there are no broken, broken promises in the novel, though several of them are weakly kept. Spoiler alert, every time a character is faced with explaining their actions, they commit suicide. Some of the shoddiest, laziest craft, craftsmen. I just End don't agree with any of that. I know, but there's a lot going on here. Man, there were a lot of points that person was very passionate about that I just don't agree with at any basic level. Okay. All right. Start us out, Spencer. Uh, well, I don't agree. Any, I mean, the In conclusion about the only point that... What, what, was, what was she said about suicide? What was the exact quote Yeah, there? no, this one is just wrong. So every I, time a character is faced with explaining their actions, they commit suicide. Some of the shoddiest, laziest craftsmanship. So we get two suicides, right? We get, we get Frank's brother... Frank. Uh, Frank is the brother. Or Fra I'm sorry. Um, yeah, Javon's brother, Frank. Mm -hmm. And that absolutely does not fall into this character. There's a very clear reason why he commits suicide. Mm -hmm. um, and then and the, there's the the sort of yeah, child soldier. Yeah, the child soldier commits suicide. And there's also the one girl with the um, antidepressants who walks off into the forest. But that's... Oh, that's really... right. But that's, like, pretty clear. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that's really it. No, that that's not that's not an accurate summary of any of the other major characters, including any of the top four characters, like overarching every character connects with characters that I've got here. Yeah. Okay, so I, I'll I start there. Found, I just found the best one star review that I'll. Sorry, go ahead, Spencer, and then <laughs> I'll let you know. I'll give it to you. All right, Sarah, your turn. What 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 next point do you do you rebel against? Um. Well. <laughs> if you have to pick one. Um. I mean, I think that this, since we are sort of talking about characters, this sort of idea that character illustration slash anything resembling a, a thinking human is catastrophically bad is really a, a statement bordering on the insane. Um, we have a lot of people who are occasionally described in, I, I don't even know what the, the right term is, but they're, they're a little bit sort of sketched out. They're a little bit exaggerated, um, although I think that there are a lot of arguments that could be made for why that happens. Um, but I think that all of those main characters that, that you were sort of just mentioning, Spencer, have really interesting and complex motivation. They do. And in terms of most of the decision-making over the course of this book, I was actually impressed that most of our main characters behave really rationally, rationally and sensibly over the course of this book. They make the decisions that make sense at the time, and even when they err, it's still in a way that would be the reasonable course of action you would take. I at no point see characters like, you know, Kirsten or Clark in any way behaving irrationally or not thinking through the decisions. If anything, how they govern their life is a very conscious choice by which they're going about things. I, I don't understand this reviewer's point at all. I wonder if they wanted more internal exposition that you get in many, many novels mm -hmm. that I don't think was there for this one. I don't think that it's a, a problem with the book. It's no. just mm -hmm. different. You know, you don't get everybody's thoughts and motivations or a main character's thoughts and motivations behind literally everything that they do that I think in certain books is awful. Um, 
and for this one, it's all—it's often a point about certain characters. You do get a lot more of their thoughts and motivations at certain times, and when you see them later, you don't because of how they've changed. Or for other characters mm-hmm. like Kirsten, you don't get her thoughts and motivations as much because that's very much what she doesn't want to do. She doesn't want to dwell. She doesn't want to focus on the past. She wants to be in the moment, and that's a key aspect of her character that she's built that kind of way. So yeah, it, it, it's even explained in the text why we don't get that some of the times. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I will say, um, and then BJ, I want to hear your specific reaction and then also the one-star review that you have found. Um, (laughs) But I will say that the one thing I do agree with in this review um, is how much this reviewer likes Miranda. That is fair. She's definitely a character I want to discuss a bit on this one. Yes, I think Miranda is extremely interesting. um, And I am interested to kind of talk about how her arc fits in with the rest of the book. She decidedly has an arc for a character that is mostly seen looking back at the past, because she's not in the, uh, I'll call the quote-unquote present with most of the other characters. Mm-hmm. She is yeah. an island unto herself. <laughs> <laughs> a fitting description of her end, too. <laughs> um, all right, BJ. Um, I, I guess my, my reaction is mostly that there are people that are genre readers, mm-hmm. and I mean, I guess to a large extent in books that I choose for myself, I usually stick to a genre or a couple of genres because even I know for the most part that even if they're pretty bad, I'll still enjoy them. And then there are people that can't get past their preconceptions of what something should be and then just don't enjoy a book. And I feel like there are many people that give things one stars in general, and this review in specific, are, I want this to be the book I'm going to read, and then when it isn't, are unhappy about it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to say to those people, and, and I don't understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are definitely books that I haven't liked as much as others, and some that I've thoroughly enjoyed um, decrying, much to Spencer's dismay. <laughs> um, you haven't read through it all. You don't have a right to decry it yet. Guards, guards, Spencer. I'm not talking about Lord of the Rings just yet. Okay, that one's fair. You can decry guards, guards, and I can just disagree with you, and it makes good radio. <laughs> um, but I guess I can also acknowledge things that other people see in it, things that I enjoyed about it, and also, I've read some really bad books, and... I don't understand people giving one stars to books that, that aren't terrible. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I get, you know, some people aren't going to finish it. and But in the broad array of books, if it's five stars and you're rating it a one star, I feel like it should be worse than 80% of books out there. Mm-hmm. And rather than it wasn't one I wanted, so I hate you and everything about it. Yeah, um, I think it was the one-starness of a lot of these reviews that really was a little puzzling to mm-hmm. me. Yeah, And I feel like this also kind of, I, I feel like I keep relating it back to food, not because I'm hungry, but, you know, it's an important part <laughs> of my life. <laughs> if you'd like to take um, a break, BJ, we can let you go eat. <laughs> oh, I ate plenty, it's fine. Um, so... Like, I feel like McDonald's only has one-star reviews when somebody doesn't get along with, like, a cashier there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas really good restaurants, or even, like, very good restaurants, will often have one-stars when people don't have a perfect experience. Yeah. And oh. so I feel like this is, you know, in that spirit of dashed expectations that 
you know, people need to learn, do not judge a book by its cover, because that's a phrase for a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, Um, I would also like to just point out, I I do have one other review that I had sort of flagged for this, because it, in about 15 seconds, um... It's it's a one star review, but in fifteen seconds, it does essentially what our last week's podcast did in two hours. <laughs> Go on. Uh, well, the title of it, I could not figure out the point of the story. Um, so this actor dies. His first wife writes a comic that affects his son, a child actress in the troupe, and his longtime best friend. That is what the author wrote, and it left me wondering why I had read the novel. Okay. That is a very, very concise description of the entire plot. Bravo. Well done. My 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 pottering around synopses bow to the the brilliance of this. As you said, that was done in less than fifteen seconds. So I found a one star that I I now understand a little bit more why it's a one star now that I've read it again, but I Mm -hmm. also don't understand the person that is reviewing it because I'm going to say, just say they're weird. So okay. um, this person said, I'm not, um, I'm going to did not finish at chapter 13. I'm not interested in reading about some delusional cult-like psycho who calls himself a prophet and twists capital God's word. Oh boy. Um, okay. okay. Well, there's a, there's a, yes, there's you a should write a one star. We should, you should write a one star review for that. <laughs> right. But uh, so the <laughs> thing that, that makes me so amused about this for a couple of reasons is one they could have just like, oh my god! I just saw more great things about this person's profile. They could have just re- read <laughs> the chapter them and, now. Gotcha. and and realized that like it was a chapter and it has nothing to do with like ninety percent of the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also a little bit about them, but the genre that this person reads and comments on is fantasy, science fiction, and the para- paranormal. Their mm-hmm. tags are book lover, author. Booktuber, middle school teacher, Gryffindor, Jesus lover. Oh boy, and there's then, a lot going on here. And then have some Bible quotes and like reading goals and things. And it's just like, oh my god, this is hilarious. And now I understand. My, it's interesting that they had they had to get pretty far into the book to get to the like one chapter that is the prophet actually talking about his weird cult stuff. And then just focus on that. It's also one of those things, too, that if I was going to advise a person to avoid a genre, for one that's really not comfortable with prophets twisting various words to lead cults in certain settings, post-apocalyptic fiction might be just an entire genre they don't want to touch. Because that's a really common trope. Also, how are they a Gryffindor when Harry Potter is all about satanic spells? (laughs) Satanic spells and prophecies that you can actually cast. I mean that apparently you can actually cast, so that's that why you it's can really actually a cast. problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've started yelling out Wingardium Leviosa at various objects around my house, and I've been very <laughs> disappointed that there it's not been working. You should try well, having you... a hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. It's the setting that matters. Exactly. There's All right. Be magic in the air. So, <laughs> what I, I characters think... are we talking about today? <laughs> We'll, we'll come back to this. This is actually a wonderful idea for a continuing segment. Um, <laughs> Good. But, I, I'm glad you all enjoyed it. I had a great time over my lunch hour today. <laughs> I, I feel like we got basically either four or five overarching characters. Probably four, mm-hmm. but Miranda should really get her own category, even though she's effectively under Arthur's header. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've got, in terms of the characters that are have their own segments and drive the plot, we've got Arthur, who is 
the one that everyone is connected to in the driving force of this plot, despite the fact he dies on page three. Uh, Jeevan, who is also integral connected to Arthur and everybody else. Kirsten, uh, Clark, and then, again, Miranda is still very much under Arthur's label, but she is important in her own right, and so I think she needs her own category. So th yeah. those five seem reasonable. Arthur, Jeevan, Kirsten, Clark, and Miranda is the important characters of the story. Yeah, yep. and I think that, um, you know, potentially if we start running short on time tonight and we are doing theme episode next, um, Miranda might fit well into that episode. Miranda is really interesting because I, I think that's a very important place to put her. Cause she doesn't connect, she's not necessarily key in terms of interconnecting the characters or anything else, or even necessarily being a literal driving force of the plot. But her role in Station Eleven and the really interesting way that her chapters play out and how she connects in ties them seem like the philosophy of the book, even, mm -hmm. even more so than the character connections. Mm -hmm. Well, who should we start with then? Because we've spent 27 minutes without discussing a character yet. <laughs> In our way. Um, well, I, I was going to say, yeah. if we start with Jeevan, I feel like we can simple. build up in our yeah. character. Yeah. He's the simplest. Yes. Um, I really liked how unpleasantly normal his relationship with his girlfriend was. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that was a great size Sarah. Um and it I guess he had a he was sort of the very practical what sort of everybody thinks about being the main character, I wanna say, in a mm -hmm. post apocalyptic book. He's and I like how Joe Schmo he's he is, essentially. He's, he's very much the everyman of this tale. And um I just kind of like as a as a fifty thousand foot view, it's interesting that he does seem like he's going to be kind of the main character at mm -hmm. the beginning of this book, um, and we get several chapters um, focused largely around him, and then he drops mm -hmm. out of the book for I don't know the next third, the next half of it, right, um, yeah. and only comes up periodically in a sort of like look where they are now segment. Which is interesting, yeah. because he, as you said, BJ, he's really living the most traditional of the classic post-apocalyptic character arcs in terms mm -hmm. of we see his eyes as the world ends, we follow him through that process, he's the everyman who's overwhelmed but trying his best to overcome, we get a bit of the, his actual journey along the road in the first two years, which we see nobody else going through, and then we see him in the far future having settled into a life, having found a new family and a new purpose, having found a new career, the one that he always aspired to but was unable to really achieve in the real world. So it's very much fitting a lot of the tropes we see in post-apocalyptic fiction, but he's the most, as you said, he's our starting point to build up to much more of where the book actually wants to talk about. And so just as a reminder um, for our listeners, he is, uh, Jeevan is the EMT in... Um, the very first scene, who kind of goes to give uh, Arthur CPR, watches him die, interacts a bit with Kirsten, um, and then immediately leaves and starts stockpiling supplies when he gets a call from his um, doctor friend kind of warning him about the epidemic. Mm -hmm. And takes care of his brother for yes. the first couple of months as they... And we sort of get the apocalypse unfolding from their shut-in apartment or his mm -hmm. brother's shut-in apartment mm -hmm. uh, 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 and i do love his very much every man overwhelmed with situation reactions things like i love the chapter of where he's loading up like 10 separate grocery carts full of supplies that he's now trying to pull across his snow-filled parking lot to escape an apocalypse that he doesn't fully understand yet that's 
the kind of I have no idea what to do now reaction I would really engage in in that scenario. Well, he only knows that it's the apocalypse because, like, this doctor friend of his is like, hey, he it's trusts. bad. You should stock <laughs> up. And yeah. it's even a progression of it's bad. It's really bad. I'm dying. Goodbye. It's that kind yeah. of series of calls he gets over the course of like an hour. Yeah. So, I mean, I also think it's interesting. Like, I mean, I guess like I, there are many people that I guess I would trust with the, like receiving a call like that. But Lee is de- or Sarah, your husband is definitely not one of them. I feel like this is a joke. <laughs> that he would do like if he had read the the book with us he would like put in his calendar at some point in the future like hey like i just got back from you know a trip in africa where i was doing a lot of work and there's some really bad like you know there's a sickness going through there like i don't know why it's not making on the news like you guys need to like hole up and like pack a bug out bag and then like a week later be like i was just fucking with you (laughs) When you're emerging from under your stairs. Yeah. Um, I think that he is, you have called that 1000%. Um, I think that he has mentioned on Whiskey on the Weekends that he regularly just tells me the wrong time when I ask what time it is. Um, Yeah. So no, this is, he is not the the messenger for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like how many people in your lives do you, would you... If they told you things were bad, maybe not like the I'm dying because I feel like that's... Sure. Kind of a, a little over the top, but like, mm-hmm. how many people in your life, if you, if they told you to like pack a bug out bag and stock up, would you go to the store and... Without like double checking and be confident myself of what they're saying? Yep. Like just what, purely do, based do, on what they're saying first. Do what Jeevan did. Oh. Spencer, do you trust your parents that much? If my dad actually, it's one of the things where my dad's such a worry. My dad offered to charter a private plane to fly down to Florida to get me out of the way of a hurricane. So I know his heart would be in the right place if he told me these things, but I would still feel compelled to double check. I'd be double checking while I'm going to the store. Spencer. But what? Spencer, how long did you spend without power in an awful apartment? You know, there are things that are just not relevant to what I'm talking about right now. (laughs) Okay. And that particular week and a half period is just not relevant to what I'm discussing. Um, Fair enough. I mean, pretty much if any of the Magnum guys in the Magnum Circle of Friends, if you guys, if, if you two, if one, of, if one of you called me up and told me this, I would trust you enough to start going in the direction, even if I'm going to check while I'm there. So, but in terms of just like absolutely just going blind and not checking, I don't know if I could suppress the curiosity long enough to do that. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, Another thing that for Jeevan that kind of stands about is that I mean all of the main characters we're going to discuss have interconnections to the other main characters. It's how this is structured. Jeevan has a couple, but they seem less significant than mm-hmm. the other ones do. Of where Jeevan's there to try to perform CPR on Arthur to keep him going when he collapses from a heart attack of the play. He runs briefly into Kirsten, who's a little who's an actress at the play in the very interesting production of King Lear, and then he was in a prior aspect of his career a paparazzi that took a picture of Miranda outside of her house and had an interview with Arthur actually as well I remember that now but all of those are really just occasional and not really necessarily that relevant to anywhere where the story goes but they do play into the theme this author wants to bring about of all of these characters have connections in their lives that prove relevant or just binding going forward Mm -hmm. is there anything else I missed about how he connects into these other characters I don't think so I think that's pretty I think that's pretty much it Well, Sounds about right. How mm-hmm. do you guys feel about where Jeevan ended up? Does he seem 
content with his lot by the end of this story? Because he certainly I am is very happy for Jeevan at yep. the end of this story. <laughs> uh, he got rid of a girlfriend who's the worst, pursued his career. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I, I think he, of the people in this book, I feel like he and uh, Clark sort of end up in some ways like the happiest mm-hmm. which is interesting because they both pretty much on day one lose a and i'm going to use air quotes given jeevan loved one is kind of the start <laughs> of their arc mm-hmm. um, yeah but yeah given of our five five main characters two are dead uh the other three end up in varying degrees better than that i, I agree with you that jeevan seems to end up in the most content place given how really unhappy he comes across in his first chapter. He's so overjoyed to finally have a use, to finally be certain about what he wants out of his life, but all of the aspects of his relationship and the world around him, just you watch his collapse as he's going from this moment of utter bliss to just realizing he has no support network to even celebrate it with. Whereas at the end of this tale, he's found a measure of simplicity about his life, but it is still very much what he wanted, even if if it's tinged with a certain bit of sorrow. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say the only other person that I feel like has a vaguely, I wouldn't say happy ending, but is the chronicler that, that does interviews. Francois. Yes. Yeah, we only see him for like one chapter. We, and then I got to ask you all about, we're going to discuss Francois. I, I got to ask, does the book imply something vaguely insidious may have happened to him or his city? Because they talk about how he's publishing this one paper three years ago. And everyone's mm-hmm. aware that this paper was published. But no copy of this paper ever makes it back to the museum, then again, ever after. Well, but the museum is a history of the past more than, like, of the pre-Georgian flu. Yeah, but so they never even get a report that another, another like, article of this newspaper was published. Yeah, I mean, very possibly. Um, I don't for, think we have for, anywhere near enough s- to, go, to go on with respect yeah. that. That just caught me up. It, it struck me as interesting, given how excited he seems to be about publishing this, and then it, we get... We have a clear, several characters state that no other articles of it were ever published. Well, yeah. and it's, yeah, it, it does have a sort of suspicious quality to it. Um, but I think that it also, we, we don't get enough information to kind of make a definitive judgment. It could be an indication of just how little actual travel is happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That because well, they didn't bring it, you know, the troop did not bring it, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. didn't get anywhere. Um, it, 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 it purely could just be the fact that they move in a circle, and that circle takes like two or three years. They just haven't come back around to pick up, pick up a new copy yet. Yeah. 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 Um, and they've also never been to Severn City before. Valid point. I mean, I agree with you, BJ, though, that he really does come across as the most happy, one of the most happy people in this story, of mm-hmm. where he's still very nostalgic about the past and what they've lost, but he's so damn excited about this project and wants you to be excited <laughs> with him. Mm-hmm. And his kind of frustrated that Kirsten isn't. <laughs> yeah, he picked a weird one for the interview yeah. there. <laughs> in, in discussing a story about things, about the experiences that people have had moving along this road of the new life, I'm going to talk about a person who A, doesn't remember any of it, and B, doesn't want to talk about it, period, and what she's willing to discuss, she doesn't want on the record. Great mm-hmm. first person. Just a stellar informant. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> well, in, anything discussed with Jeevan, or should we move, on, should we move up the totem pole? Or uh, down up, yes. Right. Move elsewhere. Um, I guess in terms of things to discuss, I feel like our Clark is sort of the the next building mm-hmm. block. I guess sort of the also the the bookend to a large extent mm-hmm. to to the book. Literally, mm-hmm. yes. Um, well. Because he's sort of so so Clark is the uh, Arthur's 
quote-unquote best best friend. Uh, I guess I, I didn't get that sense per se, but I feel like it's mostly because it the points that we see Arthur for the most part, he's just not wanting to be friends with anybody. Right. So the, the, uh, these two seem to have met in college, like when he was at acting school. Is that was, I think that's when they met for the first time, mm-hmm. and. They were wonderful college friends at that point in their life. They established a friendship that they were going to keep forever. But they don't see each other that much over the next few decades. And the times they do see each other, it becomes very apparent to Clark in particular. We don't see inside Arthur's head much how far apart they've come and how increasingly difficult it is for even in these moments of where they're connecting through nostalgia to bridge the gaps of where they are now. Hey, Spencer. How's D doing? What? How is D doing? D? A, a college friend. Oh, God. A... Yes, fine. Now I understand. I was like, it's making a reference to V? What romantic partner do I have? Romantic partner or friend do I have to have a pen pal relationship with? Oh, wait, Doug. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so, so yeah. I, it This is a very relatable character in many mm. ways that you understand a lot of who he is, what he's done, and where he's gone with his, his life post-apocalyptic disaster. Mm-hmm. And I find it sort of fascinating that there are aspects of his look and and that he feels are important to continue with, and also, and I think that's part of a preservation of the pre-apocalypse society that he is doing essentially as a curator in this airport terminal. And I think it's interesting, too, that, I mean, he went through a variety of different phases as kind of a young man. Um, But for his pre-apocalypse kind of settled career, he essentially does these like 360 degree analyses and consulting sort of gigs of high powered executives or managers or something in various companies that have maybe something wrong with them. But like essentially what he does even though he doesn't particularly like it in that moment, is he curates information about people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sort of, he creates these these visions from the perspectives of, of, other, of other individuals around them, not unlike potentially what this book is doing, um, but also not unlike what he is doing in the Severn City Airport. He's just yeah. doing it with artifacts yeah. there. Um, and he seems much happier with the artifacts than with the humans. A thought that just occurred to me, too, um, his, I think it's boyfriend, I don't think they're married, uh, Robert, uh, isn't he actually a professional curator himself? Doesn't he reference that he, that he was running a museum or something right before the, when the apocalypse happened? He, I don't remember. He very well might have been. It's a vague thought that I had, but if so, that again just ties in how much of his life before the apocalypse was associated with this kind of curating of ideas or people or memories mm-hmm. or history, even the people he chooses to be around, but... Now that everything else has fallen away and he has a very different perspective on his job once things start to fall apart than he did maybe when he was doing it, uh, he's able to find a different lot in life. And Sarah, you talked about how your kind of dream scenario in Apocalypse would be to be living Kirsten's life traveling with the, tra- the traveling symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, I much more picture myself probably ending <laughs> up in a Clark role. That's probably more I, where I would be content enough to end up in this, in this post-apocalyptic scenario. I can't imagine you um, collecting cell phones and credit cards and laptops and all kinds of things. Uh, But one thing I think that also really does suit you to Spencer is his Clark's kind of centrality in the conversation about we are living in this post-apocalyptic society now. Mm -hmm. How do we deal with 
teach, what do we teach our children? Right. That, that's a very interesting discussion that comes up in Jeevan's chapter too. Of mm-hmm. to what degree does the past matter now? Yeah. Is this something that we should continue to persist in? Because you know, at least in a different setting, the past was something that we could actually learn and benefit from because the past is a part of our evolution. Whereas in this world, the past is a cut-off thing, at least from respect to a lot of the characters. It's something that can never be. Is there any value in teaching children essentially a degree of a taunt about this magical world that once was that they can't really conceive outside of fiction? Clark seems to fall very much on one end of that scale, but we hear other characters discuss that the past should be forgotten because it has no relevance to the future, which I don't think is something the author ultimately agrees with, but she has several characters say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of dichotomy of people that seem to want to forget the past to move forward and those that want to remember the past to move forward. Mm -hmm. Which makes it particularly interesting when Clark and Kirsten meet at the end of this tale, because they're two characters with very different philosophies in life, but find a common moment in this brilliant light on the horizon. Yep. And still my biggest disappointment about this book. (laughs) Where it ends? No, no, that I never get to see or read Station Eleven. Oh, yeah, okay, <laughs> sorry. Well, only two chapters of it were done. I, I don't care. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah, also, you, 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 you mentioned all these, you know, just lost cell phones and everything else. I, my closet door is open, and I'm seeing my box of used electronics that I've not turned in. That's just full of oh leftover god. electronics. And I'm like, oh god, I'm already making my own museum it's right your, here. It's your practice run. <laughs> Oh, uh, you know, when people say preparing for building their apocalypse kit, I don't think they usually mean that. But apparently (laughs) I'm doing it differently. You're building your 20 years after the apocalypse kit, Spencer. Spencer's going to have his used electronics, old socks, and, you know, just Probably still a a lot of soil in (laughs) it. A lot of soil. Yeah, we'll have to get some more for you. Um that that even in the pinch of the apocalypse it's just like no it's too thick i don't want to drink it <laughs> it's one of those things where you guys are going to be traveling years after in the apocalypse and you're going through your things and just find one of my socks just <laughs> having gone through it all there's a sock at the bottom of your stuff spencer i think i have socks of yours in this house and you have never been to this house <laughs> oh the socks came with you you can't leave the socks behind <laughs> When basically, just use use memories of me as just use, use the socks as mem- as a metaphor for memories of me. They're gonna stick with you. Right. Spencer would never be able to keep a house elf. <laughs> I don't get that reference. <laughs> just free them continuously. Wait till book two. <laughs> um, well, so all right, do we have other things we want to talk well, about, Clark? How, how does Clark connect to the other character? We've, yeah, discuss, so, we've discussed a yeah. couple. Yep, so he was Arthur's best friend, and we do Mm -hmm. see him interact with Arthur a couple of times, Mm -hmm. and it shows how much Arthur has changed throughout his life when he meets up with Clark, and how how much they can no longer connect, and how much they no longer do connect as they see each other. Particularly their last interaction in a restaurant together, shortly at the same time that Arthur's forming the play, that was a really painful chapter of where Mm -hmm. Clark realizes that Arthur has called this meeting with him, invited him to lunch for the purpose of his own marketing, that he has no active real desire to spend time with his old friend. He's just arranging for a lunch to occur in a public place so that he can be seen and so that word of mouth can spread about the play that he's in. And it's really painful to see Clark realize that, to realize that, okay, this is effectively the end of our friendship right now. 
Uh, and yeah, it's real, it hurts to see that play out in Clark's mind as he le- when he leaves sadly from it all. But other connections, pretty much, just don't, he doesn't really have any really connections to Kirsten or Jeevan. I don't think they ever they, they, they interact other than meeting Kirsten at the end of the tale. At the very end, mm-hmm. yeah. But his other main connection is honestly to Miranda, mm-hmm. where he actually plays a pretty key role in her story. Mm-hmm. Where he meets her, I don't know if it's for the first time, but it's one of the first times at that one infamous dinner. Oh, that fateful stuff. dinner party, yeah. <laughs> where, where he's the only real character that makes any effort to actually commiserate with her to spend time with her whereas be a human yeah, be yeah. a human not operate in this little Hollywood orbit that the rest of them are living in uh, which is heartfelt and tragic in its own way too because they're both realizing at that moment man Clark's, Clark really does come in for a lot of ends we see him at the end of his relationship with Arthur we see, at the, we see him at the end of Miranda's relationship with Arthur we see him at the end of the story in terms of Kirsten's in some ways end of her philosophy of things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we do see of, him at the beginning of the Severn City Airport, though. Yep. We do at the end at, at the end of modern society. Yes. Yeah. It's a transition. It, it's a series. Of, it, it, we, I mean, this is another character we see a bit of the apocalypse with, but it's a purposefully isolated way of playing it out for him. Because mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, he, in some ways, Severn City and the people there are saved from the ravages of the apocalypse because a quarantine notice went up quickly. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And, and, so, and just like the insanity of how they deal with that quarantine, like I guess I kind of understand like a quarantine's a quarantine, but mm-hmm. like not letting people deplane and that that just yeah yeah that's a, yeah. and they they never go in that plane right that plane literally no. just sits as a tomb for decades afterwards on the tarmac and yeah. that's that's the other thing that Clark is sort of there for and I we're not going to discuss him as a main character but Clark is is there for the beginning of the prophet yeah of where I guess we can go into the the prophet's a sub character of like several of these people but we either can discuss him a little bit with Kirsten or Arthur depending on how we want to how we want to do it but as you said mm-hmm. he gets to see the in fact the end of Elizabeth and the beginning of Tyler making his transition to the prophet mm-hmm. yeah um I do have a question when we get to the prophet, and I think sure. maybe Arthur is probably the best yeah, point gonna... to do that. Yeah, I think it makes more sense to do it there. Do we yep. want to do Arthur last or next? Because him and Kirsten are competing next. for each other. Sure. I was going to say next, because honestly, I don't like him as a character. Well, given his importance, we'll see how that plays out. But, but I guess I feel like he's only important in the way that like... He's important as a narrative device. Sure, but but I feel like he's important to bugs in the way that a spider web is. Like he's he's connections, but like shitty ones. <laughs> All right, BJ, go with that. Tell us about Arthur. Um, Wait, before so, we start talking about Arthur, okay. I think that this is mm-hmm. an appropriate time for me to tell you about my drink. Oh, please, oh, what you got? Exciting. Um, well, so Arthur is. We first meet Arthur when he is playing King Lear in King Lear. Um, mm-hmm. As one does, I suppose. Yeah, and uh, and, and be weird King to Lear... play Richard in King Lear, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but King Lear is really, I, I would argue, a lot of Shakespeare is is of course very important to this book. But King Lear is the real um, kind of connection point again, as as Arthur is. We've been talking about. So I have made for the first time in several episodes an actually good cocktail. Um, oh, wow! I know it's very exciting. And it is a take on, I, I shouldn't say take on, it is a Cure Royale, um, but I am not oh. calling it a Cure Royale. I am calling it 
a Lear Royale. <laughs> uh, forgive the ignorant, but what actually is an a Cure Royale? Yes, well, I think you mean a Lear Royale, but it's it my is... My apologies. <laughs> I mean, I'm really disappointed right now, Sarah. <laughs> what? Because you could have called it a Cure Lear. <laughs> it could be a Cure Lear. <laughs> um, it is, so a Cure Royale is um, about an ounce of creme de cassis with champagne. Hmm. Actually, does sound good. It's delicious. It is obviously very easy, and it is a beautiful color. Well, I'm very glad you found a drink you enjoy on this program, because I was thinking as you were saying this, when was the last episode that you enjoyed your concoction? And I can't remember. (laughs) It's been a long time, so I'm glad you're actually... It was probably she unnames them, and I enjoyed them too much, and then I had to start making things I didn't like. Gotcha. I was going to say, I pretty much go with, um, well, sort of Lee's philosophy on uh, drinks for the pod, um, where my cocktail is is whiskey. Sure. Uh, (laughs) So. So, that's in honor of of Arthur. uh, Um, Yes. Tell us about Arthur. Um, so Arthur is, uh, basically he's sort of the nobody that grew up in an island in the middle of nowhere that's an interesting place, um, that sort of decides that he hates life on the island, uh, decides that he wants to become an actor, does some, uh, I believe moves to uh, LA to do that, eventually gets his big break in film while he's sort of waiting tables and such, um, when he was friends with Clark. Um, becomes a successful film actor, kind of peters out and is the worst to a lot of people, um, like his first and second wife. Um, third one too, probably. Uh, we just don't know that he was terrible to his third wife. It's falling apart uh, for some reason. <laughs> well, It's yeah. falling apart because he likes the child wrangler. Yeah, that, uh, may, yes. that could play a role, yes. It could just be opportune in light of the fact it's falling apart. We don't know. Yes, it, it's the chicken and the egg situation, you know, is it falling apart and then he wanders or because he's the worst or does he, is he the worst, wanders and then it falls apart. Why not? Like his first marriage. Um, anyway, so then after sort of becoming uh, very passe in film, he decides that what he should really do is act the theater. Um, and he does so in, in King Lear, as your titular cocktail might suggest, and dies of a heart attack at 51, which I could, I don't know, is just bafflingly crazy to me that, like, apparently he's a successful actor, and then at 51 is sort of already out of the scene, and married three times, and is sort of with it enough to still, I mean, well... This might say more about my view of things than than how the work really is, but apparently has some uh, modicum of success with a 20-something-year-old. Fame. Yeah, but, like, sort of past fame. Yeah. Well, nostalgia is a hell of a thing, as this book loves to discuss. Yeah, but, anyway, well, I guess. Um, So... Well, it also does seem like he can be supremely charming. Yes. When he wants to be. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess it's interesting because... I would have expected that to make it into the book at some point, mm-hmm. but it's only sort of described in third person, I feel like. We, we, we see it a little bit, particularly oddly enough, associated with the play, like in his interactions with mm-hmm. Kirsten, or his interactions mm-hmm. with, um, I forget the name of the Wrangler that's at the play. I, didn't actually, I actually did not write her name down, I don't know. 
Isn't it like Tanya or something? I don't it know. is Tanya, you're yeah. right. But we, we do see it in terms of when he's not putting on airs, when he's just in a room by himself, he can really be a charming, nice guy. It's just, he has so much expectations for himself and the world has so many expectations for him that he becomes rapidly insufferable when he starts putting on his acting airs. I really feel like you're giving him way too much credit for not <laughs> being an trying asshole to? <laughs> because of himself rather than the world around him. He is, he is also just an asshole, which he seems to have perspective on to a limited degree at the end, even if he's not intending to do anything to change it. Yeah. Other um, than maybe trying to rebuild a relationship with his son. That is an interesting thing that we see in his last chapters about that is... He has a seen moment realization of what he finally has concluded matters to him. And it's his kid by his second wife? Elizabeth mm-hmm. is his yes. second Elizabeth, wife, right? yeah. Who is now yep. living in Israel with her. And he seems like he's, at this moment, turned over another leaf. That he's going to wrap up this play, he's going to wrap up his affairs, end his career. He has no idea why he's even kept this career going. And go to Israel and be with his son. And rebuild some kind of life with what he's, what actually matters. And then we see his death, which we'll discuss it with Miranda oddly seems to mirror her death in some ways in terms of this just odd moment of peace and the beauty of what he's seeing before him. So one of the only characters we see really have a death scene like that as him as him Miranda. Um, My favorite contribution of Arthur's to anything is encouraging Miranda to write and publish mm-hmm. Station Eleven. Yes. And mm-hmm. I've feel like i shouldn't reiterate my disappointment but that that, <laughs> that i i feel like that is his only reasonable contribution to society that we see in the book he plays a lot of contributions to every one of our characters yeah just not good ones you know, propelling ones i mean kirsten's, yeah, kirsten's life is built around this man pool. yeah i mean her her chosen her chosen vocation uh her favorite text her hobby uh, pretty much her sole memories of the prior world are all driven by this man. Yeah, trauma. Um. <laughs> trauma has a face, and it is Arthur's. <laughs> <laughs> How fitting for a Shakespearean play. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Ken King Lear. <laughs> yes. Um, I think that the the sort of other things that we see to an extent through Arthur are the weird island commune that he grew up in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um that is that a real uh, place did anybody look I, i'm sure there is something like it i don't know if that specific one is a real place mm. i know there's uh, a place sort of like it there's some islands kind of off the coast of washington that are like it but this was supposed to be specifically off canada but you know that yeah. seems reasonable yeah, so there are definitely a lot of canadian islands um I think Spencer might remember this. There was a point in time that I was looking into trying to buy one because I found out that that was a thing. <laughs> I, I do remember this. Yes, that was a period. Um, anyway, so, um, and that's sort of where he knew Miranda from mm-hmm. initially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess the other thing that really ties all of these characters together are there's people from different stages of Arthur's life mm-hmm. and knew him for different things and have and sort of encompass you know the different aspects of the world that is still left after he passes we've got two people that harken back to that island of where we've got v i think i think it's valerie who we never mm-hmm. meet and really don't learn a damn thing about other than that she was a childhood friend of his that he kind of vaguely served as a pen pal with for many years afterwards and ultimately from a certain point of view betrays him by then publishing all the letters that she never responded to as her tell-all book to make a profit. 
we've got Miranda, who he didn't actually grow up with, but she's like the daughter of somebody that he did grow up with or know, but she's from the yeah, same Yeah, they're island. like half a generation apart. Yeah. There's, yeah. I, think like a, I, think, I think there's like 10 or 15 years between mm-hmm. them. Um, but she does connect him back to the past, and part of the reason that he starts a relationship with her, besides the fact that she's hot and vulnerable, is that she <laughs> reminds him, I mean, that really is the reason... Uh, that she reminds him of that past, of that connection mm-hmm. back to a world that he's increasingly longing for, even if he doesn't actually want. Yeah, he want, he likes the idea of, but not the reality, which he, is one of the reasons that he left. He, he enjoys the nostalgia, the memories, and the simpler time that he now can no longer. Yeah, I feel like that might be Arthur's tagline, liking the idea of, but not the reality. Uh, that's that's a fair sum, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've got Clark, who is his college days. And the friendship that is persisting, mm-hmm. even if it's no longer no longer real anymore. And mm-hmm. then we've got all of his hangers-on from his time in Hollywood, primarily being uh, Elizabeth, who I despise from basically the first chapter we meet her. <laughs> I mean, what person? What person in the world, upon it coming out that she's actively cheating with your husband, basically just goes to you and says, "Well, I feel like everything has a purpose." Fuck you! That's not an apology. Fuck you! I don't yeah. think she meant it as an apology. No, not at all. She, she meant it as a justification for her own actions that, well, you know, it's all part of a plan and I'm just living it, so I actually mm-hmm. don't bear any guilt. I feel like the uh, your reaction is kind of more what that comment was. Um, <laughs> yeah. But... It was, her, her, it was Elizabeth saying fuck you to Miranda? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but and we, then Jeevan has his paparazzi and interview and then tries to save the life of arthur mm-hmm. which i feel like is a very interesting sort of full circle on you know the the life and times of of arthur leander yeah An interesting life and times for you can associate him too of where they openly describe paparazzi as being bloodsuckers but at the end he's desperately trying to save the life of the man that he was previously feeding on the marrow of um well mm-hmm. but he had that intermediate time where it was just like he helped create arthur because he was an entertainment journalist who interviewed him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and like, just the entire life from start to finish of, like, his, you know, immediate or, or early stardom to the middle of, like, continuing to produce his, you know, presumably waning career towards the end where, you know, he's bl- propping up a corpse, <laughs> essentially. And then, of course, Kirsten, who is at the very beginning of her career in life as such, and as a result mm-hmm. of this just... From what I mean, I don't care enough about Arthur to think he actually gives much of a damn about Kirsten, other than that she's cute and vaguely reminds him of his son. Um, but he effectively gives her everything that her life is now going to be built around, intentionally or not. He mm-hmm. gives her Station Eleven yeah. because Miranda has given him her a copy of her life's work, and he doesn't care to keep it around. Which, how mm-hmm. do we unpack that? Yeah, other than that, a lot he's going just on a, there. Yeah, other than that. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you guys interpret that scene of when we, we see a lot of Arthur versus the story. We see very various moments of his life, but we see his last interaction with Miranda where Miranda comes back to see him at the play, which becomes very traumatic for her when all the paparazzi recognize her. And mm-hmm. in some ways she's come to give him a copy of what has been the one, as you said, the one positive thing he ever did in terms of encouraging her to produce station 11. And she waits with bated breath as he reads it. He's relatively non-committal, and then the moment she leaves, he just gives a copy away. Well, 
the practical answer or do you want like a i'm looking deeper and trying to find something better from from run with it as you will bj uh do you really want to go back to your second wife and try and raise your son bearing the life's work of your first wife oh he's apparently willing to give said copy to his son i mean sure but um i feel like other than that it's just like having multiple copies and it's like oh i'm promoting my first wife's work would you like you know elizabeth do you want to read this with me um which would be a kind of hoisted upon her on her own petard which would be kind of wonderful but um yeah i I honestly think that he's just yeah it's something that maybe my son will like because i've never talked to him and then it's kind of like oh well maybe i shouldn't have this in my possession or at least not many of them when when i go back um i I don't think (laughs) i don't think in his mind there's much more than that yeah it is interesting in the course of the story, though, that even though, so even though Kirsten has like such an obsession oh, yeah. with Arthur going forward, um, that what he actually gave her was Station Eleven, and what he actually w- gave his son was sort of Station Eleven, right? And mm-hmm. that that his only real tangible. Um, inheritance to pass down Wasn't was it a paperweight was from miranda that came from tanya gave it tanya. to her just to calm her down okay. mm-hmm. yeah so it's all of the kind of inheritance actually comes from women in this story hmm. that's an interesting point arthur just um, kind of serves as a conduit for it mm-hmm. yeah um well so i don't why? know and it's and those are both mm-hmm. such touchstones for for both of them as well mm-hmm. okay the he gives her all the various... T- I mean, she gets all the tools of the adventure. She associates all the tools of the adventure as coming from Arthur. But as you pointed out, in reality, she just doesn't actually know the real source of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is a real overarching question that I have no damn clue as to the answer to. But Arthur is the spider web of this story. He is the linking point. He is what's connecting everybody else together. Mm-hmm. Why? why? Why did the author put him in that world? Does anyone yeah. have any theories? Because it, it, uh, she, cl- she it clearly likes... was intentional. Yeah. This I, I don't with how carefully crafted in some ways the story is and how well written it is. I don't. I think there has to be a point behind that. I just don't really know what it is. I mean, yeah. I I guess my theory would be that she wanted to write a book where the main character or the quote unquote main character dies in the apocalypse, <laughs> and it's. <laughs> spiraled from there in more character-driven pieces. I, I think that that's true. And Spencer, I'm glad and sort of irritated that you asked this question. Um, <laughs> that's my role in life right there. <laughs> because this this really, this was my question reading it too. And it, and it was also my question to kind of go back to the beginning of this episode. It was, it, it seemed to be the the kind of implicit question of a lot of these one-star reviews that I was reading. Nobody mm-hmm. got at it in quite such clear terms. Um, but what the, what they seemed to be concerned about was this idea of why am I following this character in the mm-hmm. past when I'm reading this post-apocalyptic narrative that seems to be about something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost wonder if this is sort of like uh, Clark's memoirs. Could be kind of book because the like the i would presume that clark would have had fairly continual contact with miranda 
would vaguely hear about Elizabeth maybe from Arthur, and Arthur was a very important person. Right, in Clark's life. Um, Presumably, you know, might have had some um, information about that from Jeevan, and and sort of this would be like if Clark were to chronicle Arthur and then look at the people that um, he's met up with, essentially, whose lives Arthur have touched, this would kind of be that book. Mm Mm-hmm. I almost wonder whether he's almost intentionally insignificant or intentionally not fitting in any of the roles of what you would think of where the driving force character, the inspiration, the pro- forget the term prophet-like figure for so many of these characters, but <laughs> he unintentionally, despite having no real relevance or actual rational grounds to be driving these characters forward, is the inspirational force for a lot where a lot of these characters end up in terms of mm-hmm. where Arthur, where, where Clark goes, where Jeevan's chosen profession becomes proven, Kirsten's life. And I think in some ways the author's maybe even offering a point that what drives you, what informs you, doesn't necessarily need to be grandiose, doesn't necessarily need to be world-changing. It can be personal, and it can be your own choice, and it can still drive and make an important life. And it seems like how that works for a lot of these characters here. Or even for Arthur, that his ultimate importance and his ultimate moment of peace are on the, not what everybody else thought would be the significant aspects of his life, or even what he previously thought were significant. But he finds meaning around the minutia and the uh, little details that connect. So maybe that's an aspect of the point, that Arthur is eminently important to the story because he isn't eminently, isn't or maybe even shouldn't be eminently important, but still is. I, I also think that for me, this is ultimately a story about people trying, a lot of people trying to find um, their way as, as, the, um, as the quote on the caravan says, to not just survive, yeah. but thrive. Um, and we see that in a lot, of, a lot of different ways. I think we see it um, most specifically in the sort of post-apocalyptic world with Kirsten um, and Clark and Jivan as well. But we also see it with Miranda, even as she does die in the plague. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see certainly Miranda trying to do that in the sort of pre-apocalyptic era as well. And so you have, you have this sort of community of strivers um, who are really trying to figure out what does it mean to be in this world? What does it mean to sort of become myself in this world? And Arthur never did that. <laughs> he strove professionally um, and was very successful in that and was very discontented mm-hmm. in that. Um, and he sort of, he becomes the sort of counterpoint for someone who was never able to thrive um, in the way that I think that this book is ultimately concerned with. Um, and so even when sort of living and acting and working in this in this pre-apocalyptic world, he couldn't. And then it becomes very clear when he dies before the apocalypse that um, the narrative is indicating that he certainly is not fit um, to survive in this new world order. I mean, for, for a book that seems to be very much about the uh, survival and persistence of the human spirit, it's one of the things I adore about this text, Arthur is very much the anathema of that. Mm-hmm. He, he is the inertia that the human spirit is trying to subsist on without actually having anything that makes it grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I feel like Arthur is a good spot to wrap up and maybe, and then we'll do probably, I think Kristen and Miranda actually might, as you said, Sarah, fit very well with the theme of like world building because Mm -hmm. they 
they each encapsulate sort of the two halves of the world that that um, uh, Emily St. John Mandel has Mandel. Yeah. yeah. Um, do, do we do we want to address the prophet now, or should we rope him into the world building for next week? Um, I I think we can address him in about a minute and a half. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, we talked about him sort of plot wise. Yeah, last and week. that's about as much play as he gets. I feel, so the question that I want to ask both of you is. When did you realize that something was up, at least, if not, like, exactly who he was? And also, I guess, you know, why do you think he was in the book at all? Um, well, I can answer the first question pretty easily. For mm-hmm. me, it's um, the very first scene he's in, the dog is there. Yep. Mm. And um, I, and I imagine the dog from Station just... Eleven, which is Miranda's dog. Right. For, for me... I, I... When when does the dog come up? I'm trying to remember exactly when that is. Almost um, immediately, like in the yeah. city that they're in, there's like a dog and it had the same name, and I was just like, hmm, there we are. That's suspect, and I just imagine you, Spencer, just completing completely writing off the dog and hoping that it <laughs> doesn't survive the chapter. Yeah, I actually did write off the dog. For me, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. Dog did not matter to me at all until at the end of the damn book. Um, for me, it was uh, when they'd said fairly early on that he came from Severin City. And then mm-hmm. when we find out that uh, Elizabeth and Tyler landed in the same airport with Clark or even on the same plane with Clark, it mm-hmm. was enough for my mind to go, okay, the point of this book is all these characters are connected. Here is a kid that is the right age that's in Severin City. That would be an interesting thing to follow through. So that's when that worked mm-hmm. for me. So why do you think the prophet is in this book at all? Because, I mean, I I fell a little bit prey to this as well, that I was just like, oh, okay, we're getting some plot, and here's a twist. And I was like, all right, well, that was... It felt like it was written in because somebody went to uh, Mandel and was just like, all right, well, you need a plot, and maybe it should have a twist because this is a sci-fi book. <laughs> and she, she was just like... All right, um, I can write this character in, and this can be the twist. Um, I mean, I think that for me, it certainly has a little bit of that, but I think um, even kind of going going back a little bit to what I was just talking about in terms of, of Arthur and, and what is going on with his sort of meaning-making, um, the other inheritance that that Tyler got from him is this sort of sterile, aborted meaning-making in the world. Mm-hmm. Right, um, this sort of posturing of meaning making that leads to nothing. He happens to do it in the post-apocalyptic world, but with with the resources that he has at that moment. Um, the lessons of his mom and the Bible. God help him. Yeah, uh, coupled with the lessons of his dad, and that's a real, real potent cocktail going yeah. on there. An inflated sense of his own importance in a world without meaning that only he can invent. God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that's sort of perfect of false prophet that then is killed by his own followers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That that is better than anything I can achieve in terms of saying the importance of this character. As we talked about in the uh, last episode, this character was the biggest change up for me that I was from very early on because he shows up very early in the story convinced that he would be the overarch the the arc villain that would uh, really drive the plot instead he's just more of a catalyst for moving the characters where they need to go mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that works and, and he connects and, into the other characters but it's not it all is hugely relevant as i thought it was going to be 
Yeah. I also wonder if it's also there sort of for a touchstone so people get the feel a little bit more of post-apocalyptic fiction. Mm-hmm. It does put um, you in that in right. that space, yeah. It's yeah. effective window dressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the other thing that, Spencer, you kind of, in your response to, to what I and, and Sarah said, I, I almost feel like he's the representation of why Arthur had to die before the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Because he is essentially Arthur in the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's sort of charismatic and doesn't really know what to do with with himself except for other people sort of telling him some things and is just generally awful and essentially this is what arthur would have been if not for hollywood yeah it's a really good also just a question to ask because i have my own view on it but uh in terms of arthur's last hope for purpose in terms of going and building a relationship with his son do you all think like i do that that was as doomed to failure as every every one of his other prior plans and projects yeah, that was never going to happen. I think it would have been a different failure than many others. Mm-hmm. Well, several, I feel like... Several of his failures take years. His failure with Miranda took a substantial portion of their lives together before it, before it fell apart. But Yeah, I, I sort of imagine Arthur essentially throwing money at Elizabeth and Tyler <laughs> until... And essentially, like, living in the same large house and vaguely interacting with them and just, like here's some more money, I'm going to decide that you like me now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I'm going to decide it. that you like me now. Yeah, that's Arthur. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think that it would have, I don't think it really would have been a failure in Arthur's eyes in many ways. And it's sort of, unless it ended with like them moving out or something, but I think it would have been an objective failure. Mm-hmm. So next week. Yeah. So next week we have two more characters in the rest of the world. <laughs> and I want to talk about the other Station Eleven. The other? St- oh, the uh, Station Eleven within the Station Eleven. Mm-hmm. At least and what, I want to know it, what what that's doing there. Yeah, we're gonna. Need, I mean, <laughs> that and Miranda go hand in hand because it is as yes. much her life as anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I might be a little bit bitter when we talk about that, but I will try and <laughs> keep it in that to, extra, to extra big whiskey. You're only bitter because it sounded awesome and you wanted to know more. <laughs> yes. Um, and the other thing that, that I found, um, is that station 11 is presumably going to be a movie in the next year or two. So maybe we should, uh, return to that or at least, uh, watch that together sometime. Is it a movie or a television could... show? I well, heard... I think I'm... now we've seen both I have. options. <laughs> Um, yes. But I do think that this is the perfect moment for a Mangum Reads and a Mangum Talks TV crossover. Oh, that would be fun. Yes. <laughs> um, we have talked about that in the past, so that this might be a good time to do it. Um, we talked about kind of doing that with uh, Jameson here before too long, too. Yeah. That uh, would all be fun. Um, and so Mangum Talks TV is one of the many offerings that Mangum Talks podcasts um, the overarching brand of, of our uh, trials and tribulations, um, where Spencer and Lee are drinking heavily and reviewing a some sort of TV show called Succession. It is. Um, uh, it seems like a lot of Arthurs, from my vague understanding of the show. It, it is a show with nothing but Arthurs as characters, and just kind of picture how that plays out. 
Um, yeah, so if you want to hear about that and um, many other things, you can go to mangumtalks.com where we have, uh, again, Mangum Talks TV, Whiskey on the Weekend, uh, Mangum Breeds, this podcast that you're listening to right now, as well as our Pottercast within a podcast, Pottering Around, um, and any other content that we feel like doing on every so often. Um, and if you have any questions, comments, or other things that you want to shout at us, uh, you can click on the link at the top right of the website that says contact us, and someone will read it um, and maybe pay attention to it. And <laughs> so please uh, go do that. And with that, again, as always, it was fun. And I like how we set a lot more before us than we actually had any reasonable expectation to complete. Um, we made progress. But as always, it's been fun, and we've made progress, and we have our work cut out for us for the next time. All right. Looking forward to it, guys. Till then. Bye, y'all.